welcome to the Best of the Left podcast with quips today from The Young Turks, Ring of Fire, This American Life, and Greg Palast. He's 22 years old, and he got a $300 million contract from the Pentagon to supply ammunition to Afghanistan and Iraq. How's a 22-year-old kid getting a $300 million contract? He's got this, like, rinky-dink office set up in Miami Beach. He's got basically no record of working with the Defense Department or in weapons before. And shockingly enough, it turns out that he was working with uh, possibly some illegal arms traders. Oh, couldn't have seen that coming. He was buying weapons that we were spending millions of dollars to destroy because they're useless. He bought uh, ammunition from Albania that was made in 1950. And he figures, oh, I'm going to send it to Afghanistan. What difference does it make? If it blows up on him, it blows up on him. In fact, it literally blew up in Albania, some of the stuff he was buying. Killed 22 people, injured 300. Uh, similar uh, munitions uh, area in Alba uh, Albania blew up from the same places that he was buying, right? And I only tell you that because to give you a sense of how deep that, you know, the whatever you want to call it, the corruption, the, you know, the inefficiencies, the incompetence of this administration runs. And now we're not supposed to buy uh, any weapons from China. And of course, the kid, 22 year old kid from Miami Beach, he's buying left and right from China. And then he takes the container that says made in China takes it off, puts it in a cardboard box, sends it over to Afghanistan, and all the weapons spill out of the cardboard box because it's so cheap. He didn't want to pay extra for a heavier box because it would cost them more in transportation fees. And the guy's dealing with the shadiest guys in the world, and then it turns out he's been in trouble with the law because he's alleged to have beat his uh, a couple of different girlfriends in Miami, right? And here's my favorite part. The guy that I got... $300 million contract from the United States government was busted for forgery uh, just last year. Why? He had a fake driver's license. Now, why does he need a fake driver's license? Because he was under 21. Whew. He's like, oh, and then when they busted him, he's like, oh, I just turned 21. It's my birthday. I don't even need that anymore. Dumbass. Okay, you just admitted that you had to uh, forge license on, right? kid was so young, he couldn't buy a drink, and he's got hundreds of millions of dollars being sent to the from the Pentagon to him to procure weapons for the critical fight in Afghanistan and Iraq. Oh, this government is out of control, man. And there's a story like that every single day in the news. I, I tell you, we don't, I'm telling you, we don't, over the last five years that we've been doing this show, uh, so many of those stories have slipped through our fingers because there's too many of them. So now, of course, now that the New York Times did a story on it, the Pentagon's like, oh, what are you talking about? We suspended his contract. And the New York Times is like, really? We're running this story on the Thursday morning edition. When did you suspend it? They're like, Thursday morning. No, you're kidding, right? No, no, yeah, it's Thursday morning. We sent a certified uh, mail. Uh, it, it, the, the, <laughs> the letter's in the mail. If the New York Times didn't do that story, you think they suspend that contract? Please. Meanwhile, by the way, the, understand the importance of this. The U.S. military is getting these weapons that they're going to hand out to the Afghanis, uh, mainly Afghanistan, but some in Iraq as well. Um, and 
the, the weapons have mold on them. They're 40, 50 years old. They're, a, a lot of them are unusable and unsafe. And they keep writing back to the Pentagon, what are you doing? None of these match any of the qualifications that we need. Why do you keep sending these guys money? It's amazing how so many congressional investigations were intentionally avoided and stopped in Washington during those dark Republican years. During those years, I remember Henry Waxman, a Democrat from California, making many requests to subpoena a few of the world's biggest drug manufacturers in an effort to find out why so many of their newest drugs were killing and crippling so many Americans. Needless to say, after the drug industry bought their political protection by paying key Republican candidates more than $90 million to run their campaigns, Henry Waxman was shut down at every turn. It's what we've learned to expect. Waxman wants to know how companies like Boston Scientific and Johnson & Johnson were allowed to market heart stents that killed so many patients. Did they know about the increased risk to patients? Yeah, they knew. Did they manipulate clinical trials to make the stent look safer than it actually was? Yes, you can count on that. Did the shrub's dysfunctional FDA allow all of it to happen? Of course. We've grown to expect that. In all of that time, the Republicans flat out refused to allow any investigations. Political hush money goes a long way with this GOP. Now the GOP is not around to cover for Big Pharma. Waxman's able to ask the right questions. How did Eli Lilly allow basically unnecessary, ineffective schizophrenia drug to kill so many patients? patients by dissolving their liver tissue? Or why did the Republicans not permit an inquiry into ortho-evra contraceptive fraud? And that one, the chief medical investigator who phonied up all the clinical data to make that contraceptive look safe, had already been prosecuted by the feds for phoning up clinical data in another drug study years before. Johnson & Johnson clearly knew that the very man they put in control of ortho-evra clinical studies had had a history of being a dishonest criminal fraud. Waxman's going to have a lot of fun with that investigation. And then there's Merck. Almost too many bones to dig up here. Vioxx, a completely useless alternative painkiller, had stopped the hearts of perfectly healthy users. And here's the kicker. No less than 100 documents clearly, unequivocally show that Merck knew the simple benefit of a painkiller didn't come close to the dark, serious risks of stroke and heart attack. But they lied to the FDA. They lied to trusting doctors, and in the process of keeping their lie alive, they made a cool $3 billion. Isn't the Republican version of capitalism great? Seven years of Republican control in D.C. has created a feeding trough for the pharmaceutical industry where even the biggest pigs have grown into unhealthy
healthy fat hogs. Where I grew up, there was a saying that pigs only get fat, but hogs usually get slaughtered on special occasions like family cookouts. The best thing Waxman can do to protect American consumers, at least until the GOP returns to Washington one day, is to ask tough questions and to recognize that in seven years, Big Pharma has taken the form less of a fat little pig and more of a vulgar-looking predatory hog who looks just the right size for a good old-fashioned family picnic. The CBO Congressional Budget Office, nonpartisan completely. Democrats think that their numbers are too conservative in this case. Uh, Republicans are never happy about their numbers because they're in the reality-based community, uh, the CBO is. Uh, they came out with numbers saying, yeah, what we thought the uh, numbers were going to be for the budget this year of $161 billion, we were wrong. It turns out it's going to be $250 billion. Oh, by the way, that doesn't take into account this 100 to $150 billion economic stimulus package which you're considering doing which would bring it up to 350 to 400 billion dollar deficit for this year Bush said oh I'm gonna cut the deficit in half really <laughs> well, 350 billion dollars doesn't sound like you cut it in half it sounds like you nearly doubled it. okay so by the way George Bush get a load of this man this is this is how we get into the problems this is how we eventually have the market blow up when he came in, they had projected, again, Congressional Budget Office and, and other nonpartisan groups had projected over the next decade, from 2000 to 2010, a $5.6 trillion surplus. We could have paid off our entire national debt with that money, let alone you know, solving Social Security and Medicare, let, get, making them solvent for, for you know, as far as the eye can see, let alone all the other wonderful things we could have done with that money. But instead of that $5.6 trillion surplus, George Bush added, in this short seven to eight year period, will have added over $4 trillion to the deficit. He nearly doubled the deficit in just two terms. For the entire history of America, he nearly doubled it. The man is an absolute walking disaster in every conceivable field. Whether it's the Iraq war, you know, whether it's Hurricane Katrina, or whether it's the budget. I mean, and, and just anything you could basically name. But man, did he screw up the budget. And by the way, so we spent all this money that we can't pay back, and that lowers our currency, and that lowers uh, uh, overall confidence 
in America and American markets and the American economy throughout the world, and that leads to this huge economic problem we're having now. And what did we get for it? At least if we bought something for it, you can say, all right, well, on the other hand, America's got the largest yacht you've ever seen. <laughs> we bought a gigantic mansion. We built a cathedral that will you know, last for millions of years. Something. Give me something. We solved Social Security. We solved poverty. We got better education. We got, you know, a Medicare system. We got national health care. Or, you know what? It costs us a lot of money, but we got a new energy program, and we don't need to rely on oil anymore. Those are things I could have lived with. But we spent all this money, nearly doubled our deficit, wiped away that $5.6 trillion surplus we were supposed to have, and what did we get for it? Not a damn thing. A disastrous war in Iraq, a government that's done no better on any issue that you can name. George Bush, oh God, you think you're going to be treated kindly by history? You don't have any idea, man. Your reputation is going to get worse and worse and worse as we go along. And because the longer we go, the more chickens come home to roost. And this stock market meltdown is exactly one of those chickens bark, 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 coming home to roost on your ass. And you might have, right now, what Bush did was with this, uh, what he's going to do with the stimulus package, which the Democrats agree with, which I don't agree with. And what he's going to do with this interest rate cut is sticking another finger in another hole in the dam. Now he's got ten fingers and ten toes in all the different holes that he's got in this dam. And at some point, that's going to burst. And you know what Bush's strategy is? No, not late. Let me take one finger out and put cement on there and fix it and do a short-term fix. And then in the long term, we'll build a new dam. <laughs> no, George Bush's uh, solution, if he has his way, if he can pull it off, and he might or might not, we're going to find out in the next year. His solution is, let me just put all this stuff, patch it up for as long as I possibly can, and then as soon as a Democrat gets in office, because he expects a Democrat will win next, I'm going to pull out and let the dam burst right on their ass. And they go, oh yeah, the Democrats. No, I had this thing figured out, but... I guess they lost the Iraq war and had to pull out. Um, I guess the economy turned south when the Democrats came in. Oh, yeah, the deficit was out of control. Yeah, the Democrats were in charge. What can you do? <laughs> and you know what? Some people will fall for it. And, and you know, as much as we, you know, in the reality-based community say, no, that's not why it happened. It was all the underlying problems that he had built and it, that mounted and mounted and mounted. You'll get through to some people, and you won't get through to others. doesn't like to talk about her future anymore. She'd wanted to go to med school, become an OBGYN, and she's exactly the kind of kid everyone roots for. She grew up in a poor, mostly immigrant neighborhood in East L.A., where most people didn't graduate from high school, and nobody talked about college. But Martha got into UCLA. She couldn't believe it. UCLA. She majored in chemistry, 
threw herself into six-hour lab sessions, ran a volunteer organization on campus. But the fact is, she can't become a doctor. She can't work at all in the United States, not legally anyway. She's an undocumented immigrant. Her mother brought her to the U.S. from Mexico when she was nine. So now she's a waitress, earning minimum wage, working off the books, and it may be the best job she can hope to get. The worst part? Well, first of all, I suck at it. <laughs> my boss always gets these complaints from me. Oh, she takes too long to get my drinks. She forgot to put this on my order. She changed my order. I asked her, well done, and she brought medium. And I'm extremely clumsy. I really suck at it. I can't multitask. I'm horrible at that. I don't know what's wrong with me. I'm very clumsy by nature, and you can't be a clumsy waitress. You know, that's like an oxymoron. <laughs> And um, that's one thing. And the other thing is I am a very proud person. And I don't like people treating me a certain way. So, like, many people have come and told me, oh, here, you can have your, here's $20 for the milk for your baby boy. People look at me and right off the bat assume that, you know, I have a bunch of children, I'm probably a single mother, and that bothers me. And... I don't know. I think being a waitress bothers me because people don't see my potential. When Martha arrived at UCLA, she figured she'd be the only undocumented kid there. But she was wrong. She found others. A high school valedictorian and prom queen from Compton who went to UCLA when the Marines rejected her. Only legal residents can enlist. Another valedictorian brought to the United States as an infant who spoke her first word in English a shy girl who arrived as a toddler and took 11 AP classes in high school. They are a tiny, close community. They actually have a small student club. They go out and mentor undocumented high school kids and raise money for scholarships. And they understand each other in a way that no one else can, like what they go through to stay in school. Most live really far from campus, two and a half hours in Martha's case, and they have to be creative to survive. Being on hobo mode is something that we students, undocumented students specifically, um, you know, it, it, that's what we call it, you know, is living on campus because it's, we don't have a home near campus because we can't afford it. It's really, really expensive. So we'd stay here days at a time, sometimes a week, or sometimes, in my case, I did it weeks at a time. I would stay in the library and sleep in the library. I would store my food in, like, a lounge in a building. I would take showers in the locker room, you know, and I would store all my clothing because I'd bring underwear. I'd bring a change of clothes for every single day and store in the lo- in the locker room. And it's a, it's really difficult to do that. And also it's kind of stigmatizing because, you know, you, you, you kind of get ashamed if people find out you're in hobo mode. <laughs> 20 years ago, California allowed undocumented kids to go to state universities with financial aid and everything. Five years later, the courts reversed that. Kids like Martha would have to pay huge out-of-state fees. Four years after that, a ballot initiative barred undocumented kids from college altogether. Then the courts got involved again. Today, the laws for someone like Martha are different in every state. Ten states, including California and Texas, allow undocumented kids to go to state schools and pay in-state tuition, but no financial aid, no Pell Grant, no work-study job, not even a student loan. To apply for a green card, which would solve all her problems, Martha would have to quit school, move to Mexico, wait in a line that can stretch 10 or 15 years, and most likely get rejected. Last year, Martha found a perfect job to support herself, on campus even, but she couldn't accept it. 
A UCLA professor needed a research assistant, someone to help her interview Spanish-speaking families in East L.A. Martha knew the neighborhood, spoke Spanish fluently. The professor called Martha to say she got the job. And I got the phone call. I was so excited. I was like, oh, my God, this is a really good job. But it didn't, it didn't click to me that I was going to be on the payroll, you know. I thought, oh, well, maybe she can just pay me cash or whatever. I was very naive. And um, I was really bummed out, but I try not to think about it too much. What kept you motivated through all of this? Med school. I want to go to med school. I wanted to be, I still want to. I mean, there's still a possibility it could happen. It's just not now. Oh, why did you want to be a doctor? I want to be a doctor because I've always seen myself as a public servant, but I also see myself as a scientist. And to me, that's the only thing that I see myself doing because it gains you respect from people. And, well, right now I try not to think about it because it depresses me that I can't do it right now. Listening to you, I get the sense that you think that respect is something that you have to fight for. Yes. It, unfortunately, it, not everybody gets respect just by being human being. Um I'm not the kind of person that seeks power. I don't like that. I don't want to rule people. You know, that's not what I want. I'm not ambitious in that sense. I just would like to be someone whom people, whose opinion people respect. Someone like, like say, oh, there's this really important issue that we need to solve and we need your help. Or, um... Someone that people will say, oh, look, there she is. Let's go talk to her because we really like her work. We really like what she does. That kind of thing. When Martha and I talked, she kept calling herself a quitter. She said the word like it was the worst word she knew. She said it over and over. I told her she was being ridiculous. I've known Martha for almost two years. I've never seen someone put so much pressure on herself. When her grades were mediocre, she wouldn't blame her home life, or her commute, or the pair of double waitressing shifts she worked most weekends. She would just say she hadn't tried hard enough. One quarter, desperate to find more time to study, she actually started driving to school, even though it scared her to drive without a license. As an undocumented immigrant, she's not allowed to get one. I kept asking her, what do you mean, quitter? Finally, she explained. Fall quarter, I just gave up on myself. I dropped all my classes and then withdrew from the quarter because I felt so tired. I felt like I don't want to do this anymore. I'm that was the quarter that it was. you were going to graduate at the end of that quarter? Mm-hmm. Right at that quarter. Can you believe that? It was the last quarter I could have just worked harder. But I didn't. I was, I was just so overwhelmed. And... My, my future is so uncertain and so unbelievably sad that I think to myself, well, why should I try, you know, like harder? I just give up on that. Good night. <laughs> Sorry. I shouldn't give up because a lot of people don't. And the fact that I do really hurts me. Um, none of my friends know. I didn't tell anybody. I didn't talk to anybody about it because <clears throat> it's really embarrassing for me to say that I'm <clears throat> that I'm such a quitter. What happened to Martha is she saw graduation approaching, and after it, nothing. The blankness of her future, suddenly only weeks away, drained the fight right out of her. Her entire college career seemed like a mean joke. 
She had exhausted herself, working twice as hard as most of her classmates to get a UCLA education, plus waitressing, plus the commune, plus cooking and cleaning when her parents were working, which was most of the time. And for what? She had no way to pay for a medical degree, and no hope of becoming a licensed doctor if she did. There's a very simple solution to all of this. A bill called the DREAM Act would offer conditional citizenship to those few kids, like Martha, who grow up in the United States and make it to college or the military. If they get a degree or finish their service, they become full citizens. By 2004, the Senate version of the DREAM Act had actually picked up 47 co-sponsors. But the DREAM Act keeps getting bogged down in immigration politics, tacked onto a bunch of big, messy immigration proposals that nobody in Congress could agree on. Earlier this year, the DREAM Act was introduced again in the House and Senate. How would your working life change if you became a, a legal resident or a, a citizen tomorrow? Wow, the possibilities are endless. The sky's the limit. I mean, I could take any job I wanted, and I'm good at a lot of things. I mean, I could take any job at any lab. I could do. I could work for UCLA. Um, sometimes I think, well, what if it's not enough that that I'll still be unhappy? But the more I think about it, that's not a possibility. I mean, yes, a green card is not going to buy you happiness, but it's going to buy you a lot of peace of mind. It really is. You know, just being able to work with dignity. Martha went back to school a few days ago, and I don't think her temporary dropout counts as quitting, no matter how she sees it. She hasn't given up hope. Maybe the laws will change. Maybe there will be a normal life for her here after all. can count on health insurance, but here in the U.S., we can't figure it out. 46 million Americans uninsured. It just boggles your mind. Joining us now is Philip Matera, research director for Good Jobs First. He wrote an article titled Saving Private Insurance recently in Progressive Populist and TomPayne.com. So, Philip, you have an industry that has made profits of more than $10 billion. If you take the top six health insurance companies in, in this country... Their profits have swelled during a time where people remain uninsured or underinsured, and they are these companies are always complaining that they're not making enough money. I mean, put that in perspective for us. Well, there's a certain irony here, which is that these companies were created in the first place to try to save money for employers and ultimately for you know users of health insurance. And instead, they see the whole business, you know, as a way of making a ton of money for themselves. 
Well, I mean, the, the, the Wall Street Journal, I mean, great article that I think you even have in your in your article. You talk about the Wall Street Journal article that, that uh, stated that health maintenance organizations are all about penny pinching. They're, they have more cash than they literally, I'm not, not exaggerating, they have more cash than they know what to do with. They can't even, they can't even find places to put it. And they're complaining that they're not making enough money. Right, because they're not really in the business to provide coverage. In a sense, they're in the business to deny coverage, because that's how they make most of their money. When they refuse coverage, they can find some kind of excuse. Yeah. Well, I mean, Harry Truman had a great idea. He, he, I, he wanted to come up with a plan that would put a system together to where you weren't relying on employers to provide coverage, but the, the actually the government had a, a system in place that would, as he wanted to put it, he would protect people from their economic fears of illness. What happened with that, and isn't it kind of a microcosm, a little story about what's happening today? Well, I think it is. I mean, although the, the ideology maybe isn't quite as intense as it was then, because when Truman's proposal actually got kind of caught up with a lot of the Red Scare um, going on at the time, and, and groups like the American Medical Association tried to associate, you know, national health insurance, you know, with some kind of communistic-type program. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, they succeeded. Mm-hmm. And, the you know, the Truman Plan was defeated, and, you know, we were left with the same kind of patchwork system. I mean, there have been a few improvements for certain sectors, obviously for seniors, Things are a lot better now than they were in the 50s, you know, thanks to Medicare. But for people in the workforce who aren't lucky enough to have a job with decent coverage, they're still struggling. Yeah, the real irony is that back when Truman was proposing all this, you had the American Medical Association that thought it was such a bad idea. And then in the last few years, you've had those same doctors having to sue in HMOs just so they could even get paid. Yeah, I mean, in a sense, the doctors kind of were hoisted on their own petards in this. You know, they wanted to, you know, limit universal coverage. They wanted to kind of keep things under the, you know, the the mixed-up system of, you know, some private insurance, some nonprofit insurance, some government things. And and at a certain point, when the when the real focus was on cost containment, this was particularly in the 1980s, the HMOs came on the scene to try to deal with the cost containment process, and they ended up putting the squeeze not only on patients, but on the doctors and other health care providers. They actually had it. It was so bad that they had gag orders, gag clauses, where the doctor was prevented from actually talking to the patient about what all the options might be open to that patient for uh, treatment. I mean, wasn't that part of the problem? Oh, sure. In fact, one of the leading companies in that field, U.S. Healthcare, which was then bought by Aetna, was notorious for that practice. In other words, they have the doctor sign off, and basically, contrary to everything that he's made his oath as a doctor, is you are not to tell this patient that there might be a treatment that would save their life. Exactly. It sort of takes the professionalism out of medicine and turns the doctor kind of into a partner with the HMO in in the quest of cost containment above all else. Well, let me ask you about it. You talked about United uh, Health Services. Their revenues, I think, in uh, looking at your article, the revenues in 2006 were around $64 billion. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, it's it's unbelievable that I mean, well, these companies have become so large. I mean, these are staggering kinds of numbers when you consider that people are dying 
uh, they're dying because they can't get medical care and because this GOP administration has done everything they can to interfere with moving the ball forward at all. If you remember, you know, when Hillary Clinton came up with an idea that we should that should be in place by now, it was the GOP that was, I mean, just went after her like she, you know, like a junkyard dog. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, there's a certain irony in the fact that some of these companies have gotten so big because the whole notion that you need private health insurance is to have competition. Yet we're seeing less and less competition. These companies are taking over their competitors. And, you know, soon, you know, we're going to have, you know, just two or three huge uh, mega providers. We're going to have enormous power over the market you know, over employers, you know, over over patients. It's it's completely unabated. I mean, there's nothing, the government's not doing anything to interfere with that, are they? It doesn't seem that way. I mean, it's, you know, it's almost like what's happened in the, you know, the telephone industry where there was this, you know, big effort to break up Ma Bell into all these baby bells, and now all the baby bells are getting together into a few giant bells. And, you know, we kind of go in circles in this regard And, you know, it's part of this kind of desperate attempt to maintain private ownership of an industry which, you know, for most of the industrial world is treated as something that needs to be a a government service. I mean, not necessarily the actual health care provision itself, but the administration and the oversight of the the health system is a government function in most places, and it seems to work out reasonably well. Of course, there are you know, there are times and people, you know, criticize the Canadian system because sometimes there's a long wait for certain procedures. So, you know, they're not, they're not perfect systems. But if you look at the overall, the quality of care in most of those countries, you know, in relationship to the amount that's being spent on health care, they look a lot better than the United States. Well, a lot of the money that's actually being spent is actually being spent by these companies administratively, isn't it? I mean, you've got them spending millions of dollars on just administrative issues that could be really put towards uh, more direct care, right? Right. I mean, they're spending billions essentially to deny care. Well, explain that. What do you mean? Well, I mean, because you have all these people at these health insurance companies who do everything possible to limit the amount of care and coverage that subscribers can receive. And then you look at the numbers. I mean, WellPoint, for example, you know, the giant company that emerged out of the blues, uh, the Blue Cross Blue Shields, last year spent $9 billion, that company alone, $9 billion on marketing and administration, which is about a qu- nearly a quarter of what it spent on actual benefits mm-hmm. for health coverage. That doesn't even include the cost, probably, of what they spend on lobbyists to perpetuate this right. scam. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing. Plan- and it's hard not to conclude that all that political influence is the reason why most politicians just assume that we've got to preserve private health insurance rather than looking to, you know, some other alternative, whether it's an expansion of Medicare for more of the population, you know, or some other kind of, of system that where the profit motive, you know, is not in the way of providing wider coverage.
now this outsourcing story. Now, India, we've sent so much outsourcing to India that they can't handle it anymore. And they've begun to outsource the outsourcing. And one of the places that they're outsourcing to is Mexico. So get a load of how the global economy is working. Mexicans can't get jobs in Mexico, so they cross the border to come into America. But the Americans have lost their jobs to India. And the Indians have so many jobs, they're sending it back to Mexico. <laughs> they go, wait a minute, that's funny. <laughs> and now India's got a whole bunch of outsourcing to a whole bunch of different countries. Uh, and they're using Asian countries like Singapore and Thailand, etc. And they're also using Latin American countries, uh, Brazil, Uruguay, Mexico, especially for Spanish speakers. We need uh, calling centers for the Spanish speakers in America and the Indians don't know how to speak Spanish, so they're sending that back to Latin America to, to give that those jobs to Spanish speakers. Makes perfect sense. Uh, but here comes the second funny part of the story. They've also begun to outsource jobs to America. <laughs> so we're outsourcing to them. They're like, oh, there's too many. You know what? Let's go hire some Americans. And I uh, get a load of this. The guy who runs the, uh, the main company who does it, he says, well, you know, there are some uh, less developed backwards parts of America that could use the jobs and the help. So they're sending it to Idaho and Virginia and some of the others. And maybe I think Kentucky. Dude, that's embarrassing. <laughs> okay. If I if you live in one of those states, you got to be like, ouch. <laughs> that's That's tough, man. That's hard to take. But the flip side is, hey, the jobs are coming back. So I guess that's positive. And then the very end of the story that the New York Times has is funny. Uh, this guy gets a job with this giant, uh, you know, call center company, and they're paying really good wages, and they're hiring managers from America as well, not just to the people who are answering the calls. And he's getting hired as a manager as a high-level job. He turned down a job with Google to get this job, and his he says, "All right, mom, I'm going to India to do this job." And his mom says, "Well, I guess if I have trouble with my credit card company, then I get to talk to you then." <laughs> he's like, "No, I'm not." answering the calls i'm going as a manager she's like sure 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 <laughs> so uh hey Seuss, uh what do you think are you proud that the uh, jobs are coming back to mexico maybe this will solve the immigration problem yeah maybe i'll try to sneak into mexico illegally and get a job <laughs> over there now oh wait a minute wait a minute wait a minute think about that for a second imagine if it got to the point where americans are sneaking into mexico to get the jobs that were outsourced from india that were outsourced from america that's it. That's when we build a giant statue of irony and we all, you know, <laughs> we, <laughs> I mean, that that would be awesome. And then the Mexicans get tough and they're like, we have to build a wall, man. This is ridiculous. They keep coming, taking our jobs. These white guys. Listen, I got to answer the calls. I don't have time for this. Uh, Jesus, is revenge uh, a dish best served cold? Totally. And then bet you that the Mexican will end up hiring some Americans to build the wall. <laughs> By the way, come on, man. That is a true story, and that does not get enough coverage. They hired some of the companies hired illegal Mexican immigrants to build a wall between the U.S. and Mexico.
Jack from the Young Turks. You're listening to the best of the left. But there's a lot more Young Turks at our website, theyoungturks.com. Please check out our daily video clips and our freewheeling rolling postgame show where we talk about politics and cover other fun subjects. And if that's not enough, you can always subscribe to the Young Turks podcast with a complete show. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to Ring of Fire. I'm Mike Papantonio with Bobby Kennedy, and we're talking about Exxon's obscene, disgusting oil profits. Okay, so Bobby, you know, your point about dictatorships, I love your discussion about this in Crimes Against Nature. You, you really handle this really well. And that is trying to really figure out what a dictator is. We have the wrong picture of what a dictator is. You know, I'll tell you something. The, the Saudi royal family sure falls more into the dictatorship kind of ruling than uh, Cesar Chavez. Well, look at, you know, look at Chavez's record. As I said, he's the most popular leader today in Latin America. He is cheered everywhere he goes. We so mishandled this. He could have been a huge opportunity if we had embraced him, which he was looking for. And instead, you know, we've gone after him with hammer and tongs. Uh, Pat Robertson said publicly on TV, we should assassinate yeah, him. Yeah. Um, not only that, you know, we engineered a coup to kidnap him. Yeah. Otto Reich, who was the director of Latin American affairs under Bush, when he first came in, what Chavez did in early 2001, he passed a hydrocarbon law, which said that the foreign oil companies that are taking the oil out of our country can no longer keep 84% of the profits, which is what they had gotten up to that time. He said they can only take 70% of the profits. Okay, Otto Reich and the United States government under Bush found this so offensive that they met Otto Reich, who was, you know, one of the engineers of the Iran-Contra yeah, affair and was yeah. found to break the law under Nixon by illegally sending propaganda to Nicaragua at that time. And he's promoted instead of jailed. He's yeah, got, a, by got a free pass and promotion. Yeah. Right. He meets with a series of disgruntled Venezuelan billionaires, and they engineer a coup where they literally kidnap the president in the his version of the Oval Office in the presidential palace, and they hold him, and then they declare the Chamber of Commerce goes and and stages an inaugural where they uh, put a, a a local business lawyer for one of the oil companies as the new president of the country, yeah. and we immediately recognize the guy, but secretly Chavez knew this was coming. And he had in tunnels below his offices, he had put loyal troops and they came back. You know, they came through the tunnels, opened the doors and said, you guys have got to leave now. You know, let me let and, me mention something. Something you mentioned that maybe it was lost. You said it so fast. Part of the people driving this is the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. You see, when they cheered Pat Robertson's uh, statement about let's kill Hugo Chavez, it, the people cheering was corporate America. Because what hap what's happening down there is you have Hugo Chavez. He's refocused Venezuela's foreign policy on Latin America economic improvement, on social integration, and on enacting some type of bilateral trade and reciprocal aid, aid agreements down there that he calls, and the U.S. hates this, Oil diplomacy, and that's that is let's is let's all get together in this region of the world. Let's bank together. Let's have bilateral trade. Let's have reciprocal aid. Let's build a confederation that can stand up to the West. And that's why all the corporate thugs were so gleeful when Robertson said, "Let's go kill Hugo Chavez." That's why the U.S. Chamber they, of Commerce they, was involved they, in the scam that you were just talking about. And they did it. They repeatedly tried to assassinate him until. Ch 
Chavez did something very smart, which is he levied an assassination tax so that every time it was an assassination attempt, he would get $130 million of extra taxes from the oil industry. The assassination attempt immediately stopped. was just warming up. Exxon had begun tapping into Venezuela's heavy tar oils in the Orinoco Basin. Despite rising oil prices, Exxon figured the government should be satisfied with a 1% tax on the profits. Chavez changed that to a 16% tax. Shell Oil and other foreign extractors had made a habit of not paying taxes on their oil windfalls. Shell when handed the back tax bill, balked and was surprised to find itself in 2005 bounced out of a lucrative natural gas project. Chavez redirected the gas, meant for export, back to Venezuela's own consumers. Venezuela has landless citizens by the millions. It also has unused land by the millions of acres locked up in fallow plantations on which a tiny elite has squatted for four centuries. In 2001, a new law required selling untilled land to the landless. It was a program long promised by Venezuelan politicians at the urging of John F. Kennedy as part of his alliance for progress. Progress waited for Chavez. Heinz Ketchup's Venezuela division didn't like the new terms for doing business and shut its plants in the state of Maturin. Venezuela seized the multinational's property and put the workers back to work. Pat Robertson was not the first to suggest terminating Chavez with prejudice. The very good chess player simply instituted a kind of assassination tax on U.S. oil companies. Every time a new plot to shoot the president was foiled, Chavez's tax authorities would send another bill for those back taxes. Shell Oil was hit with a new $130 million tax bill and got the point. In June 2004, neocon Otto Reich friend of the coup plotters, was disemployed by the U.S. State Department. And what does Chavez do with Shell Oil's tax money? In Caracas, I met with a reporter for the TV station whose owner is generally credited with backing the failed 2002 coup. She pointed to the ranchos, the slums above Caracas, where homes, most made of cardboard and tin, were quickly changing into blocks and cement. He gives them bread and bricks so they vote for him, of course, she was disgusted. By them, she means the 80% of Venezuela, which is negro e indio, black and Indian. This poor, dark 80% had, until Chavez ran for president, left the running of government and the spending of the nation's wealth to the minority white 20%. The bread and bricks and jobs and new health clinics are intimately tied to the ebb and flow of capital, and now Chavez was standing in its way. In early 2003, his government overturned the keystone of borderless globalization and imposed controls on the movement of capital. The Wall Street Journal reported with surprise that instead of economic doom, quote, the controls trapped liquidity within the economy, which led in part to reduced interest rates and helped boost economic activity. Lots of economic activity. In 2005, their economy grew by 9%, highest in the Western Hemisphere, following a blazing 18% in 2004, with the biggest boost occurring in the non-oil sector. Government services for health, education, and food subsidies didn't drain the economy, as flat-world globalizers predicted, 
but added to economic demand and productivity. Chavez then waded further into the rushing flow of international finance to build another economic dam. His backers in Venezuela's Congress voted to require all private banks to dedicate 20% of their lending portfolio to microloans for small businesses and small plot farmers. As a result, a large portion of the oil wealth in Venezuela would have to stay there, barred from flowing northward, as is the custom with petrodollars. Most important, 20% of the working class's savings would be channeled back to it, rather than rising upward to fund the extravagant high-rises in Caracas. Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, excellent show. Hope hope you enjoyed it. Another great effort by our guest producer, Chris Priest, doing a very professional job, and hope to hear lots more from him. And uh, thanks to all of you who wrote in after uh, the last episode. Uh, very nice to be welcomed back. Uh, very good to be back. Thanks, uh, thanks to everyone, all of your uh, support and kind words and so forth, and especially uh, those of you uh, reacting to what I said uh, about um, offering to help support the show, kind of asking what you can do, how you can get involved. And it made me realize that, uh, you know, we actually have a lot more information on the website than uh, we ever bother to talk about. You know, it kind of sli- slips 
my mind to mention it. So, um, so you know, obviously, thank you so much for offering to help, and, and you know, maybe a lot of you um, had the idea that you might want to help, but you didn't know how, and uh, and so we actually have answers to that up on the website, and so I just wanted to talk about that for a moment. Uh, if you go to bestoftheleftpodcast.com, right up at the top of the page, you'll see a tab called Send Us Clips. And uh, and just check that link out. Just, you know, if you, if you have any thought, no matter how small, uh, that you would like to help support the show, check out that tab. Just do... Do us a favor, do us a huge favor, and, uh, and, and give yourself the opportunity to maybe direct some of that political energy you've got in, in this very exciting campaign year. You know, if you want to get involved in politics, you want to get involved, make the slightest difference uh, in whatever way you can, check that out and, uh, and just read what it has to say. Uh, see that we've made it very easy to uh, submit clips and... Uh, and even for those of you who don't know yet how to work with the software that you could use to edit clips, we have video tutorials on free software that you can use, whether you're uh, using a Windows machine or a Mac. Uh, the, the software should be available to you for free, either software that comes free on a Mac or, or software that's free to download and totally safe and virus free and we totally vouch for it uh that that you can uh, download and learn how to use really easily um you know the the sorts of things you'd have to do to edit some clips is the simplest thing in the world so um so i really urge you to check that out and then even if you don't want to uh, edit clips out yourself there are other options um anyways it's very easy very simple that is something i should have mentioned last week instead of asking you guys for help i should have told you more about uh about how to help and more details and you know just to give you the confidence that obviously it takes to to kind of step up and and get involved with something like that so uh so anyways yeah just check that out it would be a great help to us and then while you're there i know this is going to be asking a lot i know but um you know i'm i'm coming back to the show and and really want to uh, pump things up and, and get people involved so uh, while you're there checking out the send us clips link on the side of the page there are three uh, three buttons there that are the biggest ways to support the show and help spread the word I mean the the reviews and the reactions that we get from the audience are just over the top uh, positive. And so, I mean, and, uh, you know, I love the show as much as you guys do, you know, th- this, this isn't, uh, the content is obviously what, what makes this show special. And, uh, and so we, we use great content. We try to do a good job. And if you guys like it, uh, help spread the word about it. And there are three things you can do and they're simple, uh, buttons on the side, take you right to where you need to go. Uh, reviews in iTunes, five-star reviews, uh, do a great job of keeping us on the featured page in the news and politics section in iTunes, digging the show. I know many of you will be familiar with what is one of the most popular websites on the entire internet, 
dig.com, D-I-G-G.com. They have a new podcast section that they um, created within the last uh, couple of years. And, uh, and Best of Left could really, um, could really benefit from you just going and clicking that you dig the show. And if you have a dig account, it just tallies that vote and that's all there is to it. And then the last one is podcastalley.com. That's a podcast voting site that ranks all the podcasts in the world that want them, you know, want themselves to be listed in that directory. It's... I think easily the most uh, the most popular podcast directory in the world. It's one of the originals from the dawning age of podcasting, and so they do a great job of doing monthly voting. So even if you've voted for us before, you can do it again every single month. And so I want to you know consistently ask uh, ask that you you know do that and and help. Uh, help get us up in the rankings over at Podcast Alley. So, so those three things, plus checking out how to submit clips to the show. Uh, just if you have the slightest inkling that you want to help support the show, at least just take the five minutes to check out what we have to say on the website. And then if you want to take the step further, we'll be here to help you every step of the way. But just uh, don't just say, well... You know, I, I wish I could help and then not bother uh, checking out the website because you think it'll be too hard or you think it'll take up too much time uh, or anything like that because it's really not that bad and every little bit of help we get goes an enormous length to helping improve the quality of the show and help maintain the show and, and get episodes out on a more regular basis. So, oh, all right, that's all I got to say. Um, Hopefully, uh, we'll get to the point where we won't have to just spend uh, the end of every show begging for help. But, uh, uh, you know, you and all the other listeners coming together and, and helping out will, will get us to that point. And, uh, and maybe then I can add some of my own perspectives and, you know, interesting stories to the show. I know that uh, you probably won't care about that at all, but, you know, my girlfriend does. She She's trying to pressure me into talking about her because she likes it when I talk about her on the show. Makes her feel important, which she is, obviously. That's it for today. So from inside the Beltway, yet outside the border of Washington, D.C., this has been Jay uh, for the Best of the Left podcast, brought to you by bestoftheleftpodcast.com. Just a phone